1: 1700 hours central african time good evening and welcome to africa digest you're listening to channel africa always giving you news from an african perspective today is wednesday the 31st of july the kids would call it hump day it's downhill until the weekend from here on out Uh, definitely looking forward to that we're broadcasting to you from our studios in Johannesburg, South Africa, and we're online on www.channelafrica.co.za. My name is Samora Mangesi, driving the show with Onilin Sinsi, Tracy Boomgaard, as well as Neto Chimani. Top stories on Africa Digest at this hour, the DRC's president and his predecessor reach a power-sharing agreement between the two coalitions. The Mandela Institute for Development Studies to host its inaugural scholarship leadership development training. In economics, South Africa's health department hopes to get an additional $10 million from the health promotions levy next year to fight non-communicable diseases. And in sport, Zimbabwe get their 2019 Kasafa women's campaign off to a winning start by defeating Angola. Hello, Onele.
2: Good afternoon, sir.
1: How are you? I'm tired. How are you? I am good. Now, yesterday we did speak about the fact that today is the 31st. It's paid yes. for a lot of people. So I was expecting you to be, you know. No, I actually
2: thought about you when I got the message. <laughs> I said, oh, this is what Samara was talking about.
1: You only got one <laughs> message.
2: Yeah. How many messages? Oh, excuse us.
1: Oh. <laughs> wow. <laughs> 1702 Central African time. We did say that we want multiple streams of income and some of us are achieving them. Right. Let's cross on over to Onilensinzi. Uh, she's got your latest news bulletin.
2: Thank you, Samara. The trial of ousted Sudanese leader Omar Bashir on corruption charges will begin on August 17. His lawyer says al-Bashir failed to appear in court earlier today because authorities were unable to bring him due to security reasons. Bashir was removed from office by the Sudanese army in April following months of protests against his 30-year rule. The country is being governed by a transitional military council. However, the demonstrations have continued as citizens demand a handover of power to a civilian administration. The Islamic State has claimed to have killed or wounded more than 40 soldiers in Nigeria's northeastern state of Bono in two separate attacks. The group says militants attacked a military post in Baga and killed at least 15 soldiers before carrying out a second attack on an army barracks in the town of Benishaik, where they killed around 25 more. Locals and military sources say there were clashes between the insurgents and soldiers in the state on Monday and Tuesday, more than 30. 40,000 people have been killed in northeast Nigeria since 2009 in an Islamist insurgency. Kenya is calling on the United Nations to formally list Al-Shabaab as a terrorist group, saying if that happens, there would be more action on combating extremism. The country says it will be submitting a formal request to the UN Security Council as part of its efforts to combat extremism. The UN Security Council can sanction terrorist groups and those associated with them. The defense lawyer in the trial of Nigerian pastor Timothy Omodoso has asked Judge Imra to compel the state to provide more details regarding the charges his client faces. Advocate Peter Doberman has argued in South Africa's Port Elizabeth Court that this could negatively affect Motos' innocence, as the charge she doesn't give any dates. Veronica Fauri has more.
0: Even though the previous brief trial should not be considered, Doberman pointed out instances where dates and places are vague in the indictment and where he could actually establish exact information during cross-examination of the first witness. He said it makes it impossible for the accused to raise alibis. He is unsatisfied with the way the charges are formulated. Meanwhile, women from the DA and ANC are protesting outside the court side by side against women abuse.
2: Lastly, officials in the Democratic Republic of Congo say the man who became the second confirmed Ebola case in the city of Goma has died. Ebola response coordinator Jean-Jacques Mouyembe says there appears to be no link between the case and the previous one in Goma that was announced two and a half weeks ago. The man arrived in Goma on July 13th from a mining area in northeastern Ituri province and began showing symptoms on July 22. He was isolated at an Ebola treatment center yesterday. The second deadliest Ebola outbreak in history was declared a rare global health emergency days after the first coma case was confirmed. Channel African News, I am on
1: The Democratic Republic of Congo's President Felix Chisikedi and his predecessor Joseph Kabila have reached a power-sharing agreement between their two coalitions. Chisikedi's cap per... Uh, Capo Le Changement, well known as CACH, and Kabila's Common Front for the Congo, well known as FCC, agreed to put in uh, in place a 65-member government for which the CACH gets only 23 positions, while all the remaining
3: 42 go to FCC. Jean Nobamuese reports from Kinshasa. They so long expected the government to be put in place would we'll be made of 48 full ministers and 17 deputy ministers. That's a total of 65 members and the prime minister Sylvester Ilunga Ilunkamba. Mr. Ilunkampa is indeed from former president Joseph Kabila's coalition, the Common Front for the Congo, well known as FCC. President Felix Tshisekedi appointed him two months ago to lead the new government to be known very soon. According to the power-sharing agreement the two coalitions released here in Kinshasa early this week, Chisekedi's le changement, when known as cash, gets only 23 of the 65 positions, while all the remaining 42 are kept by Joseph Kabila's FCC. The key ministries have been shared between cash and FCC as well. Those are ministries of justice, foreign affairs, home affairs, finance, budget, mines and defense and indeed both coalitions have agreed on this country's good management and according to this cash coalition member bevan mukunai president tisekedi will have only 23 government members but there is nothing difficult for him since the last decision will always belong to him it's not really difficult for him we can't be afraid because we know the one who is the president of this country is tisekedi If it were another person, we could be afraid. If it's a president, it means it's the president of majority. It's him going to decide. Because even though they are 60, 60 by 60, there is no problem. But the one who's going to take the last decision is the president. We are not really free. We know how things are running. This is a good shot that the president did. He knows what he did. There is not a big problem there. Discussions have taken several months to reach this power-sharing agreement. And what people here in the Democratic Republic of Congo are now waiting for is to see new faces into the upcoming government. Most of people here in the DRC believe former. President Joseph Kabila has worked with all the faces that have been closed to former dictator Joseph Desire Mobutu, and that's one of the reasons he failed to deliver according to Congolese expectations. This Congolese Peter Kayembe told Channel Africa, politicians must stop working for their own interest and accept to save Congolese. He insisted for the two coalitions to bring in new people. There is no government because the same people would destroy it the country want to come back in business. And the president can't accept to work with the people who are very known as destroyers, to continue to destroy the country. Congolese are passing the very difficult moment. As people don't have money, it has a negative impact on us population. Most of Congolese politicians are working for their own benefits. They must work for the population. The people who destroyed this country, it is time to let to others. In FCC, there are some people who did not work. They can't give chance to others to work, to do well where they did bad. And according to this analyst from the Sepromad University, the Democratic Republic of Congo is currently facing a deplorable situation since the new government has taken so long to be put in place. Simplice Iale believes political issues affect social life and this makes people very vulnerable and has even a negative impact on this country's economy since investors won't accept to come and invest in a country which is not politically stable. He also insisted. that on the need for the Democratic Republic of Congo to have a government or leaders ready to work not for their own interest but for those of this country's population simply.
4: You know how political issues affect social life. So if political issues are not stable, people will become venerable because when the government is not set, even investors will not come in the country to invest because your country is not stable politically. It's not something good for us Congolese. But something, as I say, to deplore, they have to not see only their interests. They cannot see only their advantages. They cannot work on behalf of them. They have to work for the population. Population is suffering. They want to see a government start working and working on the behalf of them. It's what we really accept to see. And the Congo, to have a government, to have leaders... We will work for the population.
3: Meanwhile, the common front for the Congo is leading both the National Assembly and the Senate in the Parliament. The FCC leads 23 of the 26 provinces, the prime ministers from this former President Joseph Kabila's coalition, and now 42 of the 65 members of the upcoming government. And indeed, this makes Kabila to remain strong in decision-making here in the Democratic Republic of Congo jean for Channel Africa in Kinshasa.
1: Mozambique's main opposition party and former rebel movement RENAMO has begun disarming members of its armed wing as part of a prospective peace deal that will see the fighters reintegrated into the country's armed forces. In a symbolic ceremony attended by RENAMO leader Osufo Mamade. Uh, Government representatives and international military experts, four fighters, turned in their weapons and officially left their base in the central Gorongosa mountains. All Renamo fighters are expected to surrender their weapons to the government, a condition for the peace deal that is planned to be signed next month. Channel Africa spoke to Eduardo Namburete, External Affairs Secretary for Renamo Party, about the disarmament process. He says... It'll take some time before it is finalized.
5: This is a process. What happened uh, a couple of days ago, it was uh, a starting of the disarmament and demobilization process, which uh, will be carried out throughout the country. So tomorrow there will be a signing of the cessation of hostilities, and next week a peace uh, agreement will also be signed. But as you may know, the demobilization disarmament process is not a one-day exercise. It's something that will take, I mean, the country is big and the armed men of Renamo are spread throughout the country. So this will be a process that will take uh, a number of days to be concluded. But the most important is that the process has begun and we are confident that everything will run, as expected, and has agreed.
6: If the peace deal is signed uh, as planned for, it will be the third between Renamo and the government. How confident are you that both sides will comply with the agreement this time around?
5: Well, the way of complying, the way of ensuring that this will be a long-lasting peace, we have to learn from the mistakes we made in the previous peace deals. So we are being very careful in this actual agreement to make sure that the mistakes that were made in the past are not made again so that is the only way we can ensure that this one will last uh, forever has the mozambicans wish
6: and how vital is the role that the international community has played in this disarmament process
5: well the involvement of the international community has been very um crucial in terms of ensuring confidence for both sides and also helping uh, with the technical expertise and uh, the financial support to the process, which is a very costly process, I must say. And this involvement of the international community is helping ensuring that everything runs smoothly and there are no hiccups because of lack of funding or lack of expertise. And that part is being covered by the international community. This is a Mozambican process. is a, a process that is being led by the Mozambican, but the international community is playing its role by providing technical expertise, uh, technical expertise and financial resources to the various stages of the process.
6: The beginning of disarmament comes two months ahead of this general election. What is Renamo hoping to achieve through the upcoming election?
5: Well, the wish for Everybody is that we have elections in a circumstances where there are no indication of any armed conflict in the country. This is the expectation and wishes of the Mozambicans. We are hoping that in the time that we still have ahead of the elections, we can ensure that the process that has just started, it moves smoothly, and that the elections also are held in a very peaceful uh, environment.
1: And that was Eduardo Namburete, External Affairs Secretary for Renamul Party in Mozambique, talking to Ayandam Kwanazi.
7: In any other era, the publication of the youth across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story.
8: What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy which can ensure full employment.
1: In any other era, the participation of the U.S. president in a ceremony marking the 400th anniversary of representative democracy would be a feel-good moment of pageantry. In the Trump era, it is also a reminder of the deep divisions that run through the heart of the country. The BBC's Chris Buckler reports from Jamestown, Virginia. In the grounds of
10: historic Jamestown, archaeologists are still unearthing remnants of the past when Virginia was a colony, not a state. It was here four centuries ago that the foundations were laid for what would become America. And David Givens, who's the director of archaeology at the site, says that's history to be celebrated.
2: Regardless of how you feel about government today, it started here in July 30th, 1619. Those first assembly members sat down. It all happened right here.
10: But it's a sign of how some feel about government in modern America. That the commemorations to mark that moment have ended up in controversy and even a boycott because of the presence of the democratically elected president of the United States.
0: He does not represent the entire country, not by his actions.
10: Black Democrats, including Virginia Delegate Dolores McQuinn, refused to attend because of what she claims were his recent racist tweets, including comments about four congresswomen of colour in which he suggested they should go back to the countries they came from.
0: What was said to those four women of colour, it angered me, because I don't feel like he was just talking to those four women. He was talking to me.
10: Mr Trump's words were particularly sensitive in Jamestown, because this summer also marks 400 years since the first documented Africans arrived on these shores. My
7: ancestors walk down this path that I'm walking on now, enslaved, stripped of their identity, stripped of their culture, their history. Steve Williams
10: works at the Colonial National Historical Park.
7: This shows you the progress, right, that I, as an African-American, um, have the title as a deputy superintendent in charge of making sure that we uh, protect the site, to make sure that our stories are... Uh, cultivated, preserved, and interpreted.
9: It was the beginning of a barbaric trade in human lives.
10: In his speech at Jamestown, Donald Trump made specific reference to that history of slavery, but his speech was interrupted.
9: Right here in Virginia, your predecessors...
10: A protester held up signs and said Virginia was their home and that the president could not send them back. And even as Mr. Trump boarded a noisy helicopter to go to Jamestown, he was forced to defend himself against allegations of racism.
9: I am the least racist person there is anywhere in the world. What I've done for African-Americans in two and a half years
1: No president has been able to do anything like
9: it.
10: At the Jamestown settlement, visitors can see what this land used to be like. They walk around recreations of 17th century forts and ships and watch demonstrations by blacksmiths and musketeers. Many here felt Mr Trump's recent attacks were offensive, but they didn't agree with a boycott of the commemorations.
2: Just because someone's coming doesn't mean you can boycott. You're still celebrating the birthplace of everything, and it's good to come here and support just Jamestown itself and a community.
7: And democracy. and democracy. Though on the Enjoy. other hand, we can certainly understand the passionate feelings that he is not representing what this country was founded on and the ideals that we hold dear to ourselves.
10: In Jamestown, you are given a glimpse of the past. And in that history of people and democracy...
1: There well, may be lessons for America today. And that report was by the BBC's Chris Butler in the United States, uh, uh, in Virginia. Mandela Institute for Development Studies, otherwise known as Minds, is hosting its inaugural scholarship leadership development training from the fifth till the ninth of next month at the African Leadership Academy in Johannesburg, South Africa. Launched in 2017, the scholarship program was part uh, was as part of mine's commitment to Africa's development by providing opportunities for African youth to pursue postgraduate study within the continent but always outside their own country. This provides the scholars an opportunity to establish networks with young people in other countries, more from scholarship program manager Wale Olaleye.
8: This is part of our uh organizational uh, program we are a policy think tank located here in johannesburg Uh, we launched our scholarship program in 2017 as part of our commitment related to supporting africa's development by providing opportunities for african young people to pursue a postgraduate study within africa i think the emphasis here is within africa and also within their country of birth we're trying to use this really to address what we see as a crisis on the continent and that's a crisis of leadership. So we're trying to build a cohort of young African people across the continent that know each other and they can de- therefore, as they grow up into their careers in future, they will be able to offer solutions to the challenges that we face on the continent.
6: Mm-hmm. So the
8: scholarship program is redesigned, really as I said, to produce future African leaders who are knowledgeable and comfortable enough about the continent.
6: And where will these programs be carried out? Do you have specific institutions where scholarships will be carried out? Do you have collaborations with institutions of higher learning?
8: Yes, we do. Presently, we have a network of uh, 14 universities across Africa. For example, we work with Makerere University in Tanzania, Africa Leadership University, Strathmore in Kenya, here in South Africa, University of Cape Town, University of witt and many others like that. But in total, we have 14 countries where we encourage our scholars to go and study on the continent. I think the idea is also to continue to promote that spirit of Pan-Africanism, because what we also see on the continent is that our, most of our development interventions are not rooted in African realities or African knowledge systems. And that's really the reason why we actually give birth to this scholarship in 2017 Hmm. to begin to address some of these challenges.
6: And how important also is it that you have African scholars dealing with African problems? You know, there have been talks about certain countries colonizing the continent. How is it important that um, African scholars are developed in the continent and about African issues rather than going elsewhere in the world to get this development?
8: Thanks very much for that question. I think it's, it's a very, very important question, especially given the motivation behind this scholarship. I can safely tell you that when we launched this scholarship, it was against the backdrop of a research that was conducted by McKenzie, a big consulting firm. And that research shows us that there's only one intra-African scholarship program that encourages admission into universities in countries other than their own. So less than 10% of the scholarship program promotes Pan-Africanism or they do not even encourage intra-Africa movement. I think that is the nature of the challenge that we face. If we appreciate that, and we also appreciate solutions to Africa's development problem will not come from outside. Yes, partnerships are needed. We have to join hands with like-minded nations to address the challenge of the continent. But by and large, the solution to our problem of this continent will have to come from Africans themselves who are committed to finding solutions to the challenges of this continent. And it's at that we think young people becomes very, very key as the leaders of today as well as leaders of tomorrow.
6: And do they have to be in a certain discipline or it's anything across the board?
8: That is also another beauty of this scholarship programme. And I'm also using this opportunity to encourage our young people across the continent. Even, especially South African young people, to actually apply for this scholarship. There is no limitation on which field of study you have to be in to apply. We also use the opportunity also to encourage young women as well to take the opportunity to apply for this scholarship. Presently, we have young women who are doing business administration as also doing studying law who are in this program. So we don't have restrictions on which area of study you should pursue.
6: And in terms of the age limit, you said young women from which ages to uh, what?
8: Again, another beauty of our program, there is no age limit to this program. There is no age limit at all, but we encouraging them as well to be post-first degree. So that's your honours degree or your university. Presently, we are not focusing on PhD because PhD time is always very lengthy, you know. But master, at least we know within two years, if the student is focused, he or she will complete the study.
1: That's Wale Olale, Program Manager for the Mandela Institute for Development Studies Scholarship, on the line talking to Tutu Ngubeni. A quick reminder that if you want to get in contact with us, info at channelafrica.co.za is that email address, plus 27763003327 is our WhatsApp number, and at channelafrica1 if you want to tweet us.
0: Across the globe,
7: every second, there's always a breaking story.
8: Of
6: and I solemnly and sincerely promise that we'll always promote all that will advance the Republic and oppose all that may harm it.
9: And maintain the Constitution and all other law of the Republic.
5: I, Matamera Siro swear that I will be faithful. To the Republic of South Africa,
3: South Africa,
8: Channel Africa.
1: All right, seventeen twenty-eight Central African Time. Um, a lot of issues that we've covered on the show so far. And I think that it's worth noting, uh, especially this one with regards to the Mines Scholarship, the Mandela Institute for Development Studies, uh, and uh, allowing young people in Africa to study multiple different uh, different studies that they want to uh, under the scholarship in different countries in order for them to be able to actually create a network with other young people, other young professionals who are in different countries. Ah, If you have the opportunity to take that up, I would say that you definitely need to. The time is now 17.29 Central African time. Let's cross on over to the news desk. Nelens Nse is standing by to let us know what is happening in the latest news headlines.
2: The trial of fasted Sudanese leader Omar al-Bashir on corruption charges will begin on August 17. The Democratic Republic of Congo's President Felix Tshisekedi and his predecessor Joseph Kabila have reached a power-sharing agreement. And the man who became the second confirmed Ebola case in the city of Goma in the DRC has died. Channel Africa News, I'm on
1: South Africans are alarmed by news that the unemployment rate in the country has jumped from 27.6% in the first quarter of the year to 29% in the second quarter, making it the highest jobless reading since 2003. PwC's Strategy and Economics estimates that total formal sector employment declined by 1.4% in the second quarter compared to a year earlier, while the number of unemployed increased by 9.4% over the same period. Economist at PwC, Christy Fulhoun, explains.
11: The increase of 29% was obviously significant. It is a great concern. Stats essay indicated it's the highest since they started publishing quarterly unemployment data in 2008. Hence, we got all these reports that it's the highest in 11 years. However, if you look further back, the last time we saw an unemployment rate number of 29% was actually early in 2003. And that was a long, long time ago. Several presidents, several governments, This period after the 2003 number, we had significant economic growth. Unemployment came down close to 20%. And now we're back up to that 29% level, which is a great concern.
6: And in terms of some of the factors that SA has talked about, do you think that there's a possibility of solutions coming our way, especially considering what's happening globally
11: in the Well, the first thing we need to think of is that employment is usually a factor that takes a while to improve after the economy turns a corner. Now, we know in the first quarter, South Africa's economy contracted. There's not real concern too much that it's going to happen in the second quarter again. I think we're going to have growth. But it's going to be a few more quarters before we see employment growth really improving. Now, if we consider the sectors that had job losses in the second quarter, these were mining, transport, finance and private households, for example. Now, mining has been in a challenging situation for many, many years. I don't think that we'll really see much improvement there anytime soon. Transport is always dependent on the health of the general economy. So as soon as the economy is growing better, we have more goods and services that need to be transported, then transport can look better. So if we have a healthy economy, transport employment should improve. Finance is actually one of the sectors where the growth in in activity is not that sensitive to the general economy. So that actually raises a bit of concern. Finance activity usually does quite well when the rest of the economy struggles. If we are now seeing job losses there, it is a point of concern. We obviously know about several banks that over the past few months have announced plans to reduce the number of branches. So there's, again, there's a factor that Due to technological change, we cannot really expect this situation in finance to improve significantly. Banks are reducing the number of people they employ. And the final sector where we had job losses in the second quarter was private households. That is obviously where people are employed directly dependent on the financial income of other people within the household. And if you are struggling to find employment, if you're struggling to get a regular income, then employment within private households remain under pressure. So there's another factor there. So looking at those four sectors, lots of concern that even if the economy does turn around, we wouldn't necessarily see a significant improvement very quickly in the employment of these sectors.
6: With the retrenchments that have been happening, even the president said there'll be mass retrenchments. We've seen a lot of companies saying they're retrenching. How is this going to turn around?
11: The president made the valid point that there's much concern about job losses due to, for example, technological change. And we see this in not only in manufacturing but many other sectors where people are replaced or you need fewer people because you have machines and computers, all kinds of digital technology that can do certain tasks. That's something we cannot stop. It's a global process. We cannot move away as South Africa from the pressure that technology is putting on our employment. So we cannot ignore that fact. So how do we cope with this? South Africa's challenge is to make sure that our workers are able to work with technology, that we are able to provide local and international businesses with skilled people that can combine physical activity with technological tools. At the moment, our education system is not geared towards that, and it's something that the President has also admitted this week. He's well aware that our education system is not creating the kind of worker that our economy and the global economy needs. So our biggest challenge is to train people, and this is obviously from primary school and and high school level, train people to have the right skills to get into the productive economy as a way of securing their own financial future and being less of a burden on the state. So we need to focus on education. We need to significantly reform the education system before we will be able to deliver the kind of workers that local and international businesses need in order to create the jobs that are unemployment rates. Mm.
6: And how would you um, summarize government's uh, proactiveness in this regard? Is government proactive?
11: Unfortunately, if the government was proactive, I think we would have seen many more results and a, a slower increase in the unemployment rate. If we think back at October last year when we had the Presidential Job Summit, there was an agreement between the stakeholders at the summit that lots of actions would be taken, lots of plans to be made, lots of strategies to be done. They also agreed that one of the biggest challenges with these kinds of plans is the lack of monitoring and, and ensuring that implementation happens. So a plan was made to set up a presidential committee to monitor these things. We haven't heard anything about this committee again, whether they were created, whatever they are doing. So we've got plans. Sure, in South Africa, we always have plans for these things. But our biggest, biggest challenge is implementing these issues. And coming from October last year to the present, we've actually seen many months where the government could have done many things. But we have been busy in between with elections, internal party issues for several of the political parties. Our government has actually been preoccupied with many things except the job situation. Uh, So I don't think we can really say that there has been proactive activity. There's been disappointment in that area. There's no real time left to change the course of that shift. We actually need proactive action from the government right now to get the situation resolved.
1: That was Christy Filiun, economist at PwC, on the line, talking to Tutongubeni. Fighting hunger and all forms of malnutrition has been the mandate of Jose Graziano uh, da Silva, head of the United Nations Food and Agriculture Agency, FAO, during his eight years at the helm. As the UN agency enters a new leadership phase, Graziano da Silva reflects on his time as director of FAO He spoke to Charlotta Lomas.
12: Looking back, what are you most proud of having achieved as Director General of FAO?
9: I would say that uh, most important for me was to bring uh, FAO back to the core mission that uh, the organization was created after the World War, that was eradicate hunger. We have been fighting hunger since we were born. And uh, basically, the first approach was to increase production. More food available would mean that we could uh, eradicate hunger. That didn't happen. We produce more than enough food today to feed all the world. And we still have more than 820 million people hunger. So we realized that we need also to look for the assets. Sometimes people don't have the money to buy the food they need. FAO started to work also on this consumer side to make food more affordable, to make food available to people. And I think that was the most important change we implemented.
12: World hunger is not going down and obesity is still on the rise. Does that mean we're off track to reaching zero hunger?
9: We are, unfortunately we are. In uh, our last meeting in New York, was the Secretary General Antonio Guterres. We discussed that and we agreed that uh, among the 17 SDGs, the number two that's eradicate hunger and all forms of malnutrition has the worst performance of all. We need to do much more for get back on track.
12: You often say that while hunger is the worst malnutrition issue, it cannot be our only concern and that we have to tackle problems of overweight and obesity as well. How do we do this?
9: Well, hunger, we know where the hunger people are, basically on countries under conflict, countries that uh, face uh, prolonged droughts, for example, or floodings, natural disasters in general, and also countries that are under economic depression. But uh, obesity is everywhere. Obesity is affecting developing countries, developed countries, rich, poor people. It's a much more complicated issue. will be difficult to face the challenge of uh, stop this uh, obesity epidemic if we do not change radically our food systems. Our food systems were not designed to provide us healthy food. That is the most important point.
12: Which country would you like to commend for having made particularly impressive strides towards improving nutrition in recent years?
9: Well, many countries did uh, many things, different things. But if I would uh, choose a country that is the front line on the tackling the obesity issue, I would choose Chile. Chile has uh, provided a very comprehensive approach to combat obesity, especially obesity among children. Chile has implemented a labeling, put a black seal in the front of the package, so the consumer can see that the product has too much salt or too much sugar or too much trans fat. Also, Chile has uh, restricted the propaganda of some products, especially during the time that the children listen to the TV, and uh, above all, Chile has uh, banned a list of products to be sold on the canteens in the schools. With those simple things, in uh, two years now that they have implemented, they are also starting to collect good results to see the number of obese children coming down. So I think Chile is one of the countries that deserves a special mention in this.
12: Conflict, climate change and economic downturns are three major causes of world hunger and are all very large forces. If you could introduce and enforce just one practical measure across the globe, what would you choose?
9: Unfortunately, there is no silver bullet for this. All these issues are so complex and interconnected, that we need a real program of policies to be implemented and looking for the long term, not immediately only. So I used to say that we need to organize the society, the government, to put it as a priority, a political priority. We know what to do to eradicate hunger. We don't know so well what to do to face uh, the problem of obesity, but we know what to do also with the impacts of the climate change. We cannot stop a drought to happen, but we can stop it to turn to a famine situation if we put adequate policies in place. And that's what the government needs to do. And that was Jose Graziano de
1: Silva. Outgoing head of UN Food and Agriculture Agency speaking there to Charlotta Lomas. 17.43 Central African time. Right after this, we're going to have your economics news with Tracy Boomgaard. And after
0: that, we'll be going to your sport.
2: Tune in to Vision 2030
0: with Una Pateke and Tabila Masugu, the new show revolving around the Sustainable Development Goals and Agenda 2030.
2: Every Tuesday, 10 to 11 a.m. Central African Time. Connect with us on all social media platforms at Channel Africa 1, hashtag Vision 2030.
7: Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story.
2: Koli tranjoey 4 Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa.
6: Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia.
7: Our cutting edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time.
9: George Muhango. Channel Africa Blantyre.
3: Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi.
8: From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world
7: about Africa. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa.
0: Thank you, Samora. The cost of cocoa has risen following a new cocoa pricing mechanism announced earlier this month. Top growers Cote d'Ivoire and Ghana announced a living income differential of $400 US dollars per ton of cocoa for the 2020-21 season, in an effort to combat farmer poverty. The two West African countries account for nearly two-thirds of global cocoa production. Ghana's high electricity tariff is killing the country's local steel industry, this according to the Steel Manufacturers Association of Ghana, expressing concern about the recent increase in electricity tariff. The association says the hike is having adverse effects on the growth and development of the industry. It has called on the government to immediately suspend the increased electricity tariff until a proper in-depth inquiry is done. Steel manufacturing companies in Ghana employ around 3,000 direct workers and 10,000 indirect workers, while companies contribute significantly towards government revenue in the form of taxes. An environmental group says about 6 million rosewood trees have been cut down in Ghana for illegal export to China since 2012. The rare species, which takes 100 years to grow, is mostly used to make imperial-style furniture in China. The report blames corrupt officials in Ghana for forging documents to allow the wood to leave the country. The Environmental Investigation Agency says in a report that the illegal trade and felling of rosewood trees has continued despite a ban being in place since 2012 and which has since been tightened. A senior official in Zimbabwe has been arrested after being accused of importing vehicles and pretending they were for state use in order to avoid customs duty. Douglas Tapfuma, who last year was responsible for running the president's state residence, is expected to appear in court later. Local media is reporting that Tapfuma rather used letters from the president's office to import duty-free vehicles for friends and relatives. South Africa's health department says it hopes to get an additional $10 million from the health promotions levy next year to fight non-communicable diseases in South Africa. In April last year, the health promotions levy, which is commonly known as sugar tax, was introduced in South Africa. It was aimed at regulating and reducing the amount of sugar consumed by citizens. As a result, an amount of $3.5 million was allocated to dealing with non-communicable diseases, which include high blood pressure, diabetes, cancer, and cardiovascular diseases, among others. Then Moeng is from the National Health Department.
2: This levy started last year and government didn't know how much they were going to get out of it. Last year we got an amount of about 50 million, which was used for NCDs for cancers, because last year's priority was cancer. This year we got a bit less, but we were told for next year it's going to be three times as much. We are putting up a plan on what are the priorities where we think this money could best be used.
0: The U.S. dollar is trading at 358.02 Nigerian naira, 10.55 Botswana Pula at 102.75 Kenyan shilling, and at 12.85 Zambian kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you 3.78 Brazilian hail, 63.41 63.41 Russian ruble, 68.65 Indian rupee, 6.88 Chinese yuan, and at 14.18 South African rand. The U.S. dollars also trading at 82 pence to the British pound and at 89 cents to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,427 and platinum at $871 per ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is $65.22 a barrel. For Channel Africa News, I'm Tracy Bumgard.
1: Right now it's time for us to cross it over to the sports desk. Here's Nit Ochimani.
7: Thank you, Samara. From the sports desk, a very good afternoon. Starting off with football news. Zimbabwe got their 2019 Kasafa women's campaign offer to a winning start by defeating Angola 4-1 in the opening match of the tournament at Wolfson Stadium in South Africa's Eastern Cape province earlier this morning. Zimbabwe dominated the match from start to finish, giving the Angolans no chance to test their defence. Zimbabwe head coach Tetelelo Sibada shared her thoughts on her team's performance
0: for so my team, uh, we led uh, the match business, um, I think we
11: won and off in that match, but um, uh, I'm happy because at least the, the team managed to maintain our, our defensive shape. And I think where we, where we, outplayed, um, we outplayed Angola we outplayed and on the the tactical awareness. Otherwise I think technically they were a a, a better side most uh, most of the time in terms of passing the ball they did very well.
0: They did very, very well.
7: Rudo Neshaba was named the player of the match after scoring a hat-trick and setting up her team for victory. Coach Sibanda was of course happy with her individual performance. The last time Angola was at a Casafa women's tournament was back in 2002. Speaking through a translator, Coach Loredes Dauracha Francisco Lutonda summarizes her team's performance.
8: Pela organização da Cruzafa e dar os meus parabéns à equipa adversária. As relações que eu tive acerca desse jogo, o jogo foi bom, mas infelizmente perdi o jogo. Acredito que através desse resultado vamos tentar ou trabalhar para next games we a good
4: Firstly, I'd like to thank Kosaso for the invite and, and congratulate Zimbabwe on, on a good win. Unfortunately, we lost the game, but I believe that it was a good game and the results from this game will take it as it is and we'll work away to see how, how much we can improve and next time we 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 play will come with a lesson well studied.
7: In cycling news, on Saturday, the UCI World Tour continues with the Tlacique Saint-Sebastien taking place in Saint-Sebastien. Team Dimension data for Quebec will be at the start of the 226-kilometer Hilly Classic, The traditional Tlacique Saint-Sebastien once again takes place as the first World Tour race post the Tour de France. Several Tour de France top contenders are expected to try and squeeze out the last bit of their July form at the Basque Country one-day classic. Roman Kriziger, who was, one, who was once the team data's best-placed rider at the Tour in 16th, will lead the team at classic San Sebastian. He will also line up in San Sebastian together with Luis Menkis, Emanuele Grebeza-Berrier, Krebeza, Jessica Johnson van Rensburg, Nick Lamene, and Scott Davies. Finally in tennis news. Mm. Tickets for South Africa's crucial Euro-Africa Group 2 Davis Cup tie against Bulgaria to be played from the 13th to the 14th of September 2019 at Kelvin Grove Club in Cape Town in the Western Cape province are now on sale from web tickets. South Africa suffered a relegation to Group 2 in October 2018 after losing to Portugal in Lisbon, making the Bulgaria matchup vital with victory guarantee in South Africa, immediate promotion back to Group 1, South Africa and Bulgaria are expected to name their teams in early September, with exciting up-and-coming prospect, Lord Harris, doubles specialist Raven Lawson expected to form part of the South African lineup. Thank you for choosing Africa stay tuned for programming news and sport from an African perspective for channel Africa sport I'm Neto and ETO Chamani
0: This is Africa
6: Digest.
1: That wraps up the first hour of Africa Digest. Be sure to join us again from 1900 hours Central African time. But for myself, Samora Magesi, producer Leander Maume, technical producer Tidimalu Makau and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you so much for listening. For comments on the show, you can send us an email to info at channelafrica.co.za or send us a WhatsApp message to plus 27763003327 or you can tweet us at channelafrica1. Taking us to the top of the hour is Kurum by Kayam Tetwa. We'll see you again later.
6: Yeah, here me a